Romans chapter 5. What have we learned in the book of Romans? Well, I hope we've learned a lot of things so far. But the one great truth that Paul wants us to get so far and all the way through, really, is salvation from sin and death is the free gift of God. That's the great message. That is the doctrine of the New Testament. And it's unique. Because all man-made religions teach that salvation is a reward for a certain kind of life, for ceremonial correctness or moral attainment. And that is not the theological position of the Bible. We have seen week after week as we've worked our way through the book of Romans that salvation cannot be earned by righteous living precisely because no one passes that test. I mean, it could be earned by righteous living if somebody lived righteously, but... What does Romans 3.10 say? There are none righteous. No, not one. There are no righteous people. But Paul has taught us that God loves sinners. He loves the ungodly. He loves his enemies. So he has achieved through Christ and in Christ salvation for us. God ordained that a perfectly righteous man can offer himself as a substitute for an unrighteous person. He can bear the penalty of sin and death. And his righteousness can actually be credited to the account of an unrighteous person. And Jesus was that righteous man. And his righteousness becomes ours, not by ceremony, but as Paul says over and over again, by faith. Romans 5.1 Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justified by faith. Now, justification as we've said over and over again, is that act whereby God declares us righteous in Christ. It is God crediting us with the righteousness of Christ, putting it in our account. That is a very offensive idea to some religiously minded people. People who invest a lot of energy in earning God's favor are horrified by the idea that salvation is a gift. It can't be, they say. It's not fair. I'm better than sinners, so how can I lower myself to say I need help in the same way that wretched sinner does? I'm better than that. Well, you'd better be better if that's the way you're going to go. Salvation begins with humility and the truth. And the truth is that we all fall incredibly short of earning God's favor. So if you're going to go down the path of meriting salvation, you'd better be perfect. When we say, other than that, other than that we need humility before God and that we have fallen before God, we actually mock God's law. When you don't obey God's law even in half and then say you do, you're mocking His law and belittling His holiness. When you say you are holy compared to what God's standard of holiness really is, you belittle it because it's so far above you so far above what we can attain. God is perfectly holy and righteous and just. And when we say that we've won His approval, we say we are perfectly holy and righteous and just. And we're not. So if anyone's going to be saved, if anyone's going to be right with God, it is a gift of His grace. Period. And that's what the second half of Romans chapter 5 was all about. 
It's a contrast between the profound influence of two men we looked at last time. Adam on one side and Christ on the other side. And Adam ravaged and ruined all of his posterity, all who belonged to him by birth. And Christ rescued and redeemed all those who belonged to him by faith. And if you recall last week, we saw that a major emphasis is placed in the text on how it is salvation comes to us as a gift. Chapter 5, verse 15. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. Verse 16, he uses the word free gift. Verse 17, the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. And before Paul even gets down to the act of Jesus whereby he redeems us, three times he says that it's a gift of grace. So yes, the righteous, not the truly righteous, but the self-righteous person is very disturbed by that information. His credit is diminished by his having to admit that he is a desperately needy sinner in need of grace and need of a righteousness that is not his own. The self-righteous individual is he's disdainful of grace. It bothers him that God would be that merciful. It's a threat to his self-image and his religion. But most people, rather than openly challenge grace, they usually become a champion of law. God's law, of course, the law that he wants us to believe that he keeps, the self-righteous man. He's a champion of that law. You know, all your talk of grace, he says, takes away from the law of God. You're giving people a free ticket to sin. When you talk about grace alone and faith alone, that's just an excuse to sin and do what you want. Yes, we all need God's aid, but He gave us His law and we are the only righteous people when we keep His law. And that's so close to the truth, but it's not true. Which is why many professed Christians fall into that kind of trap. The law is important, but not as a means of salvation. Paul is going to spend some earnest effort here talking about God's law in the next few chapters God's law is a marvelous thing. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. It's a gift of God to man to know the heart of God. To be a, a moral compass that you can use and find your way in a very, very morally confused world. But there's this enormous problem. And, and it's not a problem with the law of God. It's a problem with us. The law can't save us. Why? Because the law can only save people that keep it. And we are not righteous. Look at the end of Romans chapter 5, verse 20. He starts to talk about the law at the end of all this talk about grace. It's a shocking, shocking statement. The law came in that the transgression might increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. More law, more sin, more grace. It's, it's a shocking statement to pious ears that live in a world of religious laws, but it's really true. The law is designed not to save us because we're, we've already violated it so blatantly. 
It's designed to expose us to ourselves, to reveal to us our condition as wicked men and women, to expose our sin, even at the price of more sin being in the world. How can God's law cause more sin? Because the essence of wickedness and sin is rebellion. And when there's more rules, that nature rebels even more. It's true. While a rebel might walk down a beautifully manicured street and see wonderful lawns and not think once about broaching somebody's property, when he sees a sign that says, keep off the grass, suddenly the thought comes to his mind, which hadn't been there before, I'm going to step on that grass. They can't tell me not to step on that grass. I'm going to kick the fence over too. I'm going to knock over their trash can. I can step on that grass if I want to. Never would have thought of that if the law hadn't been there. If there hadn't been some rule. It's the way people are. Suddenly he's dealing with this delightful thought of defying a perfectly reasonable law and tromping on the grass just because he's asked not to. There was a delight in sin and that delight is what proves our condition as sinners, as ungodly, as enemies of God. That's what we're like. Now, there's a great blessing in all of this, having our sin revealed to us, because if we honestly compare ourselves with God's law and see our sin clearly, then we will be more inclined, by the mercy of God, to desire the grace that He freely offers. That's why the law came. And if the law happens to excite even more sin because of our wickedness, well, Paul says grace abounds even more to deal with that. Look at verse 21. That, as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus our Lord. What a great verse. Notice how Paul's language starts to tie together all of these themes from the earlier chapters. Grace reigning Righteousness. Righteousness to eternal life. How? Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, in chapter 6 of Romans, you begin, we begin to bring in a new theological concept. Changing subjects right at chapter 6. A subject which governs the discussion for the next three chapters, 6, 7, and 8. All the way from chapter 3, verse 21, through chapter 5, we have focused on justification. Now we're going to turn to the issue of sanctification or holiness or the obedient spiritual life. Eternal life comes to us by an act of divine grace in justification. Salvation is granted and fixed by divine grace, a gift of God's redeeming love. Sanctification is a separate but related concept. The word is the same as the word holy, sanctify, holy, same thing. And the word holy just means set apart. Now there's two ways in the Bible, two ways that the word sanctification is used to describe believers. One is sort of positional. It's that sense in which a believer is set apart at the moment of salvation as a child of God. But then there's that other sense, which is more common really in the New Testament, describing that process by which salvation is actually worked out into our life. The change. 
Grace does not stop with justification. Good, you're saved. Now to the next guy. It, it continues a work of growth and conviction and discipline, which is an outworking of the new life that God puts within our hearts when we're saved, when we're justified. And that's what chapters 6, 7, and 8 are all about. Now, as I said, the legalist, the self-righteous, the religionist doesn't understand grace. He thinks it's some kind of a free ride. He thinks it's a theology to maximize and give comfort to people who love sin. It is not that. Grace abounds, but grace does not abandon souls to sin. Romans chapter 6, verse 1 is a question that would be posed by the pro-law, self-righteous, religious person. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? See, when you start talking about grace, and you say, you know, the law actually makes people sin more, but God's salvation is a free gift. They say, oh, okay, well, let's just sin so we can all have more grace, right? That's what you're saying? And then Paul says in verse 2, no. That's not what we're saying. He uses that Pauline expression, may may it never be. The New American Standard, Standard translates it. No way! Why not? Verse 2, How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Huh? What? How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Now that's just going to make this law person go, wait, wait a minute, you got to explain that. Good, I'd be glad to explain it, he says. That's what he's going to do for three chapters. He just gets our attention. Died to sin? What does he mean? Tell us more. His answer has to do with baptism, which is very appropriate that we should come upon this right now since next Sunday is our baptismal service. Verse 3, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Did you know that? Notice this phrasing, baptized into Christ Jesus. Well, I thought you got baptized into water. No, there's more to it than that. This is a, a very powerful phrase of connectedness, of identity. And it's this idea that really connects chapter 6 to chapter 5. Because chapter 5, we follow these ruinous effects of Adam's sin, his fall on his children, and then it follows the wonderful effects of Christ's sacrifice on those who believe. Or as chapter 5, verse 17 says, those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. You're tied to Christ just as we're tied to Adam. The connection of Adam to his descendants is really obvious. I mean, we're born descendants of Adam. What then is the connection of believers to Christ? It's, it's baptism. Now, Bible teachers argue over whether or not this is a dry passage or a wet passage. And by that, they mean that baptism has a dual reference in the Bible. There's a baptism by the Holy Spirit, and then there's getting dunked, right? There's water baptism. They're not the same thing, but they're very closely linked together. Keep your finger here and turn over to 1 Corinthians, the next book, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, salvation involves a direct work by the Spirit of God. He awakens the heart. 
He makes us alive to God, as Ephesians chapter 2 says. That's what's called regeneration or the new birth. When people say, are you born again? That's what they mean. The Holy Spirit comes into a heart, awakens it, makes it alive to God, understanding all of a sudden, and make it ready to receive grace. That new birth gives us the capacity to believe the gospel. And as we put our faith in Christ, the Spirit unites us to Christ, spiritually bonds us to Him. And it's a baptism, an immersion, spiritually, in Christ. We're put into Him. Verse 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. Even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized in one body, whether Jews or Greeks or slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one Spirit. Baptism by the Spirit makes us a member of the body of Christ. So all Christians are spirit-baptized. Don't let anybody ever come up to you and say, you need to be spirit-baptized. If you're a believer, you are spirit-baptized. That happens when you believe. And that links you to Christ and it identifies you as His, belonging to Him. Now, you can see the same idea of identification in baptism in chapter 10. If you just turn back there in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 2. Rather an interesting use of the term baptism. It says, All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. They became identified with Moses by joining his leadership through the Red Sea. Follow me. Okay. Well, now you're baptized into Moses. You're one of his. You're identified as one of his. The Christian is one with Christ by the baptism of the Spirit who places us in Christ. So He is our Head, He is our Lord, He is our Savior, He is our life. There is a genuine spiritual union between us and Him as real and genuine as our union was to our parents and our first parent by birth. So what about water? Water baptism is simply an outward sign, a ceremony, to publicly and visibly identify ourselves with Christ to other people. It says, this is what happened on the inside. And now I'm proclaiming that to everyone through water baptism. It's a symbol. Look at um, Acts chapter 10 real quick. Keep your finger in Romans chapter 6. Just use another finger. No. Acts chapter 10. We'll be back to Romans in a minute. Now, I don't want to get into all this because we don't have time. We're actually totally out of time. But... Peter is preaching here in the, Rome, the home of a Roman military officer, Cornelius, a Gentile. It's the first time the gospel is going to go to a flat-out Gentile. Beginning at verse 34, preaches a gospel sermon. Everything is included that matters. He talks about Jesus' death on the cross, talks about his resurrection, his coming to judge, and then in verse 43 it says, he says, of him, Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, Everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins. It's a great, very clear presentation of the Gospel. Then watch what happens. Verse 44. And while Peter was still speaking these words about forgiveness of sins through faith, the Holy Spirit fell upon those who were listening to the message. And all the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out upon the Gentiles 
also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for those who have to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we can they. They believed. The Spirit was there. Then they were baptized in water. This is called the Gentile Pentecost. Because nobody could speak in tongues or have that kind of experience unless apostles had laid hands on them. The tongues came, the power of the Holy Spirit and through tongues and all this stuff came upon the apostles at Pentecost. And then ever since then, if you were going to speak in tongues, the apostles had to lay their hands on you. But here it happened and they're amazed. Why are they amazed? Because it came on these Gentiles just like it had on the day of Pentecost. And then in chapter 11, right through chapter 15 of Acts, when they're talking about whether or not to accept Gentiles as Christians without becoming Jewish and being circumcised, the argument is the Holy Spirit came on them just as He did on us at the beginning. So how can we argue it? God determined that they're equal with us in Christ through this baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't want to get into that whole thing. That's another whole sermon. But Romans chapter 6, let's go back there. I think Romans chapter 6, verse 3 is primarily focusing on this baptism whereby the Spirit places us in Christ Jesus. That is, it's a dry passage. But don't forget, water baptism, which in the early church, just like at Cornelius' house, usually occurred on the same day as your conversion. I mean, if you accepted Christ, they baptized you. So water baptism would be closely linked in the mind and in the memory and the experience of a believer with the reality that it pictures the day the Spirit came into their life and awakened their hearts to God. Because they'd be baptized in water on the same day. Being put into the body of Christ by the Spirit. Now, as we proceed in Romans chapter 6 here and begin to discuss sanctification, our baptism, our being in Christ, becomes a matter of great importance. In fact, it's to become a profound part of the thinking of a Christian. Paul says in verse 3 that we have been baptized in his death. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? And by that he means that our union with Christ is so real, made so by the Spirit of God, that in Christ, one who belongs to him has already died. We have a new relationship to the things of this world as though we've already died and come back to life again. The things of the world, the sin and the allure of sin is different for a Christian. Paul says in verse 7, he who has died is freed from sin. You know, sin doesn't have much allure to dead people. Try to bribe a dead guy. This doesn't get anywhere. As Warren Wiersbe says, if a drunk dies, he can no longer be tempted by alcohol because his body is dead to all the physical senses. He cannot see the alcohol, smell the alcohol, taste the alcohol, or desire it. A Christian is no longer of the world. In our relationship to this world has been radically altered by our union with Christ. I'm a citizen of America, so I grieve and, and um, get patriotic just like everybody else at this time. But I am first a citizen of heaven. First. And if America decides or does or moves in a direction that's against heaven, guess whose side I'm on? I'm on heaven's side. 
I will love my country, but I'll love God's kingdom more. I'll choose God's kingdom first. And whereas once my allegiance to America might have caused me to sin in my heart because I want vengeance, now I want justice. And I'm even willing to love my enemies. I'm a different person in Christ. I have new allegiances, new perspectives. I have new desires. Can I sin? Oh yeah. Yeah, we're not done yet with this. We just that's just we're just the verse three. We got three chapters to go through about struggling with sin. We're not saying we don't sin anymore. I know I'm not saying that. But we are different. Jesus not only died, he, he rose from the dead. When we baptize people, have you noticed we don't leave them under the water? Have you noticed that? They get real squirmy when you hold them down. I, I, sometimes I do it just for a little no, not really. They we take them up real quick, even though they feel like they've been down for a long time. We really do. We bring them right up. But, but what if we just held them there and said, you know, baptism pictures our death in Christ. And all of us have died in Christ. We're joined to him. You know, you start seeing feet flicking, you know. That's, that's not all that baptism pictures. It pictures our death in Christ and our resurrection in Christ. He rose from the dead. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 is real important, especially before you get to the baptismal service. Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism in death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in newness of life. When you baptize someone, you're picturing a, a death to the old life where their sins are washed away and they're, in a sense, their resurrection to the newness of life in Christ. They're going to walk in a different way. That's sanctification. Well, we're way out of time. We've just cracked the door open a little bit on this subject. Don't miss Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8 because it's really vital stuff. These are the missing chapters if you want to talk about practical stuff in modern Christianity. Living it. Sanctification is the church's greatest failure in modern times, but it's the essence, really, of what it means to be in Christ, to have died with Him and been raised with Him already. Let me just close with the words of Paul from Galatians chapter 2. And you can mull this over. Verse 20 I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. That's what we'll be focusing on. Let's pray. Lord, we pray for sanctified hearts and Lord knows we need it at this time. And we pray, Lord, that you would grant us the grace of sanctification as well as the grace of justification. It says in Titus that grace is a teacher of righteousness, that grace instructs us to live in a holy way. May we capture the very essence of that and truly be transformed individuals. How wonderful it is to feel and to sense and experience the transforming power of Christ and have victory over sin. And what a great reality that is. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.